Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kHz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits, people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the recovery programs that assist those suffering directly or indirectly from addiction to drugs, alcohol, gambling and food. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Today, my guest is Nick Kenny. He's a smart recovery facilitator, and he'll be talking about how smart recovery approach has helped with his recovery from reliance on drugs and alcohol. So welcome to the show, Nick. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. No worries. Nick's a counsellor, mental fitness speaker, and a coach. Uh, He runs wellbeing programs in Sydney schools with KYDS Youth Development Service, uh, works as a smart recovery facilitator, and hosts Mental Stealth Radio on Sydney's Northside 99.3 FM. And he also helps people to live happier and more meaningful lives. So, Nick, on Living Free Show, we talk about recovery from compulsion and addiction and the events that influenced your life. So do you want to talk about growing up and the sort of family influences on your life? Yeah, Bill, I think it's a really interesting one because... You know, mum and dad don't drink. Like, mum, I've never seen drink at all. Dad, I may have seen him drink maybe a beer, like, every now and then. They they were very much, you know, especially mum was very much not a fan of alcohol at all. Both of them grew up with some pretty serious drinking issues in their families, and that led them to take a certain, you know, perspective around alcohol in particular, you know, mum's dad drank very heavily and uh, dad's stepdad also drank very heavily, but um, th- they did their best to shelter us from a lot of that, to like protect us from a lot of that chaos from extended family in particular. Um, and I'm eternally grateful for that because without going too much into it, I, I feel like that was a really, really powerful thing. Yeah, it was interesting growing up, you know, my dad's a quadriplegic and has been so since before I was born and mum was a nurse at a kid's hospital and she pretty much looked after both me and my brother in terms of raising us, you know, not much support from extended family. So in terms of an upbringing and a lot of extended support that other people might have, I'd, I'd say we didn't have that, but which would have put a lot of strain on mum and dad. They were very loving and supportive, very loving and supportive. And, you know, the interesting thing about alcohol in particular, it's it's difficult to pinpoint, you know, how much of it might be hereditary, how much of it might be the upbringing. It's difficult to pinpoint, you know, any real influence, but I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was 13. And, I did try the medication, but I, I really didn't like it. And I didn't seek any external help really to manage it around that. And, you know, looking back now, knowing that what tends to happen with people with untreated ADHD and the propensity for addiction, 
is that that was you know that that was definitely um, definitely a factor involved. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, often, you know, children of alcoholics tend to carry those isms into their family. So did your mum or dad seek treatment for themselves? Like some support for themselves coming out of a family like that? Yeah. No, not that I know of. Not that I yeah. know of. I don't know. Yeah. I'd have to ask them, but yeah. Yeah. So how did you get on with your uh, brother? Yeah, look, um, like two brothers, man, you know, we loved each other and we still do and, um, you know, <laughs> we still... We still fought a lot, you know, like just the way siblings do. But, um, yeah, like, I, I don't know, I mean, it's, I wouldn't say like the most troubled or troublesome kids in the neighbourhood, but, you know, we got up to, to our fair sense of mischief. Yeah, okay. So what was it like at school for you? I went to two primary schools. The first one was the Catholic school. I got into strife there a lot. They were very strict. And, you know, I just, I stood out. I found it hard to fit in a lot and constantly getting into strife there. They they weren't too fond of outspoken, firstly, and secondly, kids who would question the Bible, which I kind of did. Yeah, I left there in year four and I went to a normal public school, to an OC class in Eastwood. And that was great. Those were two years of my life that I actually did enjoy school because I, I, you know, I was still getting a bit of strife, but I think I was in the principal's office maybe once. So yeah. in that kind of normal environment, I it was all right because it kind of blended in, you know. Yeah. So I, I guess untreated ADHD would have been difficult. So how would you go with friendships? I feel like a lot of where the substance abuse began really kind of began in a lot of that inability to fit in you know like the whole Bart Simpson like class clown the joker archetype wanting to be that class clown and not really taking myself seriously and you know playing that trickster or that prankster so yeah in terms of fitting in you know at Eastwood was okay but Catholic primary school not so much and in high school definitely not so what about your education? Did your behaviour affect your education? Yeah, it did. So I, I was diagnosed when I was 13 and I, I went to a, a really competitive selective high school. I, I was in a school where people were judged very much on their grades and their value and their sense of worth was based very much on their grades. And, you know, ending up at the bottom of the class all the time must have felt like I wasn't enough. I really didn't feel like I belonged. So in terms of my behaviour and, and fitting in at school and all that, that definitely played a big part of it, yeah. Yeah. So did things improve with, improve with friends in secondary school or was it still difficult? No, it was, it was probably more difficult for me actually. Um, being in that school, like everyone around me was really focused on studying and their grades. And I remember looking at them thinking, nah, like you guys are weird. Like you're trying to diagnose me with a mental health disorder, right? And like these guys are spending their whole lives studying. Yeah. I, I didn't fit in there and I actually made more friends. So I'd get the bus from North Ride to Epping and then a bus from Epping to the school, which was based in Carlingford. And I actually made more friends at Epping Boys 
like just in that little journey of waiting at the station for 10 minutes than I did at my whole school for six hours. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit tragic, isn't it, really? I, I don't know. I've, I've still got those friends from Epping Boys, but I, I speak to maybe one person from my, my school. It's <laughs> uh, classic, isn't it? Yeah. So if you're finding it difficult to fit in and you needed to, to make friends, so what did you do? I, don't know. I, I did what I could. I, I mucked around. I found, you know, there are, there are a few guys I got along with. But again, just playing the class clown a bit, which for some reason, like, you know, the whole idea of playing that class clown to fit in didn't really work at this school because they're like, I was just kind of seen as a nuisance, you know. Yeah, right. So did you try to improve your, your schooling? Did you try to do better or did you just give up? So I put in a lot of work for the first six months of Year 7. I did what I could. I remember getting this diary the first day of Year 7 and, and it said every Year 7 student in this particular school was expected to study 90 minutes every night. And by the time you get to Year 12, it's two and a half hours every night. I remember thinking, nah, this is the wind-up. Like, no way, right? So I did what I could. Halfway through Year 7, my year advisor hands me this report card. And I remember opening it. And thinking, you know, I'll put all this work in. I'm in this, you know, selective school, whatever. Uh, how am I going? And I looked down. And I was dead last in five out of nine subjects out of the whole grade. So they used to rank every student in the grade. And I was dead last. And so I thought, well, like, what's the point, right? Like, if I put the work in, I end up at the bottom. If I don't, I still end up at the bottom. So there were times when I put a bit of work in, like when I got put on the medication for the ADHD, you know, for, for a good six months, my grades went up, my behaviour improved and things were looking pretty promising. But I don't know, the medication, it takes takes a while to get used to. Most um, psychiatrists, I don't think, know how to pres- prescribe the right dosage. Yeah, I, I wasn't interested. So what sort of problems did you have taking it? What were the sort of effects on you that you didn't enjoy The first one for me was appetite. So I was really skinny in school and I really didn't like that. And I found that it it really killed my appetite. Like I remember looking at this lamington in year eight, like for breakfast and I'd I'd love sugar for breakfast, right? And and I wasn't interested. And I'm like, well, that's weird. But the other thing, it kind of made me feel like a bit of a zombie, which is really common with this sort of stuff. And yeah, just, I just kind of felt out of it. And, you know, for a long time, I, I actually came to the belief that maybe I don't have ADHD because here I am just a, a normal kid in this school of like study robots and the medication was making me feel weird. So maybe that wasn't me. Yeah, it, it would be strange in real terms because you don't, you don't know what normal is as a child. Yeah, you're just trying to figure out what the hell is normal. So. What happened when you stopped taking the medication? Just went back to the usual, man. Like I'd start the year, I'd have my margins drawn, I'd have my books lined up, I'd be, you know, this year I'm gonna gonna get into it, things are gonna be different. And then about a month in, it's just getting books and not doing the work and I don't know, getting kicked out of class for whatever. Yeah, that, that was the pattern that continued throughout my adult life as well in work <laughs> a whole bunch of things yeah oh well, i guess that you know, sort of takes us to, to move so leaving school then 
how did life change for you? How, how old were you when you left and how did things change? So I finished school, somehow I got through it. I, I don't know how, like I was, I was drinking in school, you know, I was rocking up with a goon bag in my school bag, like actually getting drunk in class. Uh, I think the principal had, had a soft spot for me, but I did get to finish school. I stuffed my HSC completely. Like this school is renowned for really high UAIs, but I wouldn't say stuffed it completely. I really, really underperformed. I got 73 in a school where it's expected you just get 90 or above. So, yeah, once I finished, I enrolled in Macquarie Uni where they, they allow you to do a course called the non-award program, which is uh, if you get a pass in four subjects, so you pay for the subjects up front, if you get four passes or a pass average, then you're on hex. So you're in the program. So to any young guys listening to this who are stressed about your HSC or whatever, like, I don't know, there's always another way. <laughs> yeah, I think that's one good thing from COVID is people are realising that, yeah, it's, it's not all one one exam or one result that, yeah. that defines your life or your ability. Uh, yeah. yeah. So you mentioned drinking. So when did the drinking start? First time I got drunk would have been about 15. Got drunk on Southern Comfort at a friend's house. But, yeah, it started to get consistent, like, in school, probably around the age of 17. So what do you call consistent? Weekly basis, at least, in school, on the weekends. So talking a couple of days a week. Yeah, at least a few days a week, I think, from memory. So when you took alcohol, did you enjoy it? Or were you just using? Oh yeah, loved it, loved it, man. I remember, I remember skipping school one time in year eleven, and I went to Epping Station, bought a couple of bottles of Passion Pop, and I drank them, and went back to class. I remember sitting there just feeling like in this space where I'd been bored, I'd been, you know, switched off, didn't want anything to do with it, wasn't really understanding the work. In this space, I was like oh, cool, I actually feel good here. Like, this is something that is amazing. And I just had this light bulb go either on or off, however you want to look at it, which is like, cool, this is the answer. <laughs> yeah, I've heard people say that um, it, it tightens all the loose screws. So you feel like you're, you're all together for once in your life, yeah. Yeah, or potentially the other way around. It was, you know, loosening up the screws that were too tight. Right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Makes you feel more comfortable, yep. Yeah. So what did your mum and dad think about it? Oh, I hated it, man. Hated it. Mum grew up seeing a dad drinking to some pretty dangerous levels and my old man saw similar things and, um, yeah, I weren't too fond of it at all. So what did they, did they try and stop you or divert you or do something? They spoke to me a number of times about it. You know, I remember mum said to me, you know, a number of times, she said, like the one person in our family who I remind her of the most was her dad. Like I look like him, the way I walk, the way I, I sit down. And, you know, he died when I was seven. So it's not like you know, but this was like. You weren't modelling it. Yeah. Me and him. yeah, and she said to me one time, she said, you know, everything about you reminds me of, of my dad. And lovely guy, right? Absolutely lovely guy, but the drinking was just massive. And she said, I, I just hope that you don't end up drinking like he did. And brought it to tears a number of times, you know, and 
there, there were fights. There was yelling and yeah, man, they 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 weren't too happy with it. No, I'm sure. Yeah. Okay, well, listen, we might take a short break there. Our first song today is by Jessica Braithwaite. It's her latest song. I still get excited about Christmas. Again, 
with Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10am on 3CR Community Radio. 855am on your dial. And on 3CR Digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. So together, let's think again about important matters affecting us, like economics, politics, education, health, climate, and what we can do about it all. You're listening to The Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial, and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then you can head to your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free show and how you can contact us. Uh, Today I'm talking with Nick and we're talking about his recovery with the help of Smart Recovery Australia. So Nick, before the uh, break, we are talking about uh, your mum being a bit concerned about you starting to drink and your, your drinking reflecting her experience with her father. So where did your drinking take you? I guess by this stage you were leaving uni, getting into work. So how how did your drinking impact your life? Yeah, so I think um, we're probably getting a bit ahead of ourselves, Bill, because uni for me actually lasted for about 14 years. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, that was a part of it too, like kind of jumping in and out of uni, the ADHD thing, like, oh, I'll do this, I'll do this job for a little while and, yeah, my 20s was, that was an introduction to a whole new world, you know, like uh, weed, ecstasy, there's a fair bit going on. There's the, I could rattle them off, man, there's not much I haven't done. We don't need to really go into what they were in particular, but um, yeah, things got a lot worse. So, you know, very quickly the alcohol wasn't enough and it'd have to be something on top of that. Yeah, definitely cost me a lot of jobs. Yeah. So when you say the alcohol wasn't enough, what was it that you were looking for? Like some part of me felt like there was an answer to what I needed in like the right chemical concoction, like trying different combinations of things and I'd find something new, like, a, you know, try a speed. I'm like, oh, well, wow, this makes me feel good and I can be productive and you know, that's um, clearly not sustainable. I don't know. I, I think a lot of it was just obliteration. Yeah. Well, that, that's not uncommon, people using it to, to stop, I, I guess, the noise and to forget about all the issues that they don't want to think about. So I, I guess if you said you're in uni for a long time and you were taking drugs and using alcohol, it must have been costing you a bit of money. To do that yes so how are you supporting yourself there there were some ways i supported myself that i'm not proud of so that's probably legally the best i'm able to disclose yeah yeah that, that that's okay um yeah. we're not not into outing anybody um <laughs> so i guess the issue is about if you're involved in things like that you need people around you as well. So what was it like with relationships when you were using drugs and alcohol? How did your relationships go? It's funny, you know, like 
mum often asked in the past whether certain people may have had that certain influence in my life. And, you know, we are to a very large extent a product of who we hang out with, but I see it as the other way around. Like I actively sought out people who would be interested in doing that. So like I'd start drinking on my front porch and I'd go through my phone, you know, I'd I'd look for people to hang out with who I knew were most likely to come drink with me more so than who might actually have been the closest person in my life or people. Yeah. And relationships with um, romantic relationships were chaos. That's understandable. So what about work then? How did working and using go together? Well, they didn't, to be honest. They didn't. Like most people who end up developing these habits, I I kind of used that as a reward mechanism. And, you know, like other people might be able to go out on a Friday night, a Saturday night, and that's it. I'd wake up with like a real physical craving for alcohol that would lead until, you know, Sunday night. I remember I got... (laughs) I got fired from one job for calling in sick six Mondays in a row. Apparently that's frowned upon. <laughs> um, actually, I'm still mates with the guy to this day, actually, but he gave me every chance there was. And I just, I, I couldn't function properly, right? Like, I don't know, some people, they drink and they can sleep really well, but I, I don't sleep properly after I drink. So I'd rock up dusty as hell and you could tell, you know, and, yeah, like I think by the time I was 30, I'd held down a full-time job for a maximum of six months. Yeah. What, what about work colleagues? Did they ever sort of confront you about your drinking and your performance? There was one job in particular that I, I started out really going well with the, the, the KPIs, like just smashing it for the first month. And I, I was taking a particular stimulant that will remain nameless. And that allowed me to do that and burning the candle at both ends, basically. And then the second month, the third month, just it, it fell apart. And I was, I was asked about what's going on. And I, yeah, that, that job didn't last too long. In terms of actually people confronting me about substances at work, that I, I can't remember that. Really? People are usually pretty circumspect in, in approaching you directly, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they don't like to make waves. And so when did things get bad enough for you that you thought maybe you'd better do something about it? Was there a trigger point? Yeah. So after I lost that job, the, the one where I got called in sick a whole bunch of Mondays in a row, um, I just actually felt I wasn't cut out for the corporate world or the nine to five world or whatever. And, and went off on a bit of a different path, so to speak, got further and further into that world. And I met this woman, met a woman in Terrigal one night and absolutely amazing woman. And we, we got together and we fell in love and we moved in together for three years. And she stood by and watched me actually get worse and worse for three years. She, she loved me. She thought I was going to change one day. 
and just something inside me never thought this thing would end. And I got worse and I let go of a lot of old things that I used to do, used to keep myself busy, like work and, uh, you know, study. I was on, you know, community radio at the time. I let that go and I just kind of let everything, all my happiness depend on this one person. And then when she couldn't provide that, which no one person can, right, it would then be a case if I turned to what I knew, which was booze and drugs. And I got worse and worse. And eventually she just made the smartest decision of her life and she left. And for me, that was the turning point. So how did you feel? I'm say, given that you'd sort of, I guess, invested so much in her and then she decided that really wasn't the lifestyle she wanted to do. So you must have been pretty devastated. Well, that's the thing, Bill. I don't think I did invest that much in it, to be honest. She invested way more in me than I did in her. And there was a lot of shame, a lot of guilt for letting something that good go. And, you know, I told myself, Bill, when I was with her, you know, I thought I'd ruined every good thing that ever came my way in my life because of this you know, these ridiculous benders, right? And I swore I'd never ruined that. I swore. Like, I, I knew I had something amazing there. And there was one time we are driving through Lane Curtin National Park and I, I hadn't slept in four days because I, I was withdrawing from Xanax. I'd been abusing Xanax heavily and I was withdrawing from it. I hadn't slept and I actually had a seizure while I was driving a car. Nearly drove off a cliff. And... I remember she, we were standing together on Bondi Beach afterwards and she's just, she was bawling her eyes out, man. And she said to me, she said, Nick, I really don't want to break up with you, but like, have a look at what's happening, you know? And, and I still didn't listen. I still didn't listen. I just kept rolling with it, right? Man, I, I was beating myself up relentlessly after this. Like really beating myself up. Like I looking around like everyone around me's got you know careers families whatever houses and there i am broke sleeping you know the mate's joint alone 34 years of age so what'd you do so she when she left um, we took a break and um and she said uh you know, we need some time apart. And I went out and I got a job and tried to, you know, make everything work out. Tried to, you know, oh, look, hey, no, 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 look, it's all good. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm on the mend, you know, and it's, it's way too late, right? And I remember um, at the time, like, I'm trying to find a new place. I'm broke. I'm, I'm dealing with the substance abuse issues, dealing with this breakup, the whole bunch of things happening. And I, I couldn't. There was too much stress, too much going on. And I actually, um, I called my parents. And I just I broke down, man. That was shameful. <laughs> I told them what happened. And, and the first thing they said to me was, you're welcome to stay with us if you want, which was just powerful, man. And I, I actually, uh, I turned it down initially. I said, nah, it's no way, man. Like, 34, move back to my parents, you know. And so I kind of tried to deal with it the, the old unhelpful ways, you know, get drunk, get high, whatever. That didn't work. So I tried something else, which is I went away to an ayahuasca retreat 
And I, I sat at this retreat and I got a very clear message that I was trying to handle way too much at once and just to drop everything and go stay with my parents for a while. And that's what I did. That's that's the first time I found a smart recovery meeting. Right. Okay. So did someone recommend it to you? I, I tried to, my whole plan was go up there and just meditate. Like, and that's it. And I'd meditate my way through whatever's meant to be, you know, the dark night of the soul, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, in hindsight, all I was doing was just isolating myself more, <laughs> not doing anything, which is not, you know, for someone with a substance abuse history is not a great idea, but for someone with ADHD, really not the best. And at the start, I got worse for a few weeks, like a really properly, you know, you'd probably call it depression. I, I don't know. Um, but struggling to get out of bed, struggling to do anything. And, and I, I thought, all right, well, I need to speak to someone. So I spoke to a psychologist and she heard my story. She referred me to a drug and alcohol recovery group. And I remember thinking to myself, like, hang on a minute. I need grief counselling here, not drug and alcohol counselling. Like, I'm done with that stuff, you know. Turns out it wasn't. <laughs> so, but, yeah, she's, she's great as a psychologist. Like, she knows kind of exactly where to what a person needs, right? And, but she, yeah, she she referred me to this group, told me what it was about, and um, and yeah, I, I went along and checked that one out. Right. So, what was your first impression of smart recovery? A smart recovery group, given you hadn't really had any contact with self help before. Well, I had, I had, I had spoken to in the past. I'd spoken to two counsellors. One was actually at the job that I ended up getting fired from. And I've reached out to them and the woman who was running it, like you could tell she was quite new to the job and no lived experience. So I didn't really get much out of that. Another guy at Ride, uh, he was he was okay as a one-on-one counsellor, but again, I didn't really connect because I didn't feel like there was that lived experience part. And I did try, I walked into a Narcotics Anonymous meeting in when I was living in Bondi. And I said, look, I want to get on top of this cocaine addiction. It's, you know, it's causing mayhem. You know, I still want to have a few beers. Like, I want to rein the drinking in. I want to, you know, just the, the cocaine's causing the major problems. And as soon as I said that, everyone, like, most people kind of rolled their eyes and some pulled out their phone, just like they switched off. And and that's that's their model, you know. Like, it's there's, theirs is very strict around just nothing, you know. And I, I didn't realise, like, that was you know, exactly how they operate. And this guy came up and at the end he said, oh, no, man, like you'll, like I've been where you're at. You think you can just have a few beers, this and that. You'll end up just doing the same thing over and over. You got to, you know, you got to commit to the program. And and even if I wanted to quit at the time, I wouldn't have been able to. Like if, even if I wanted to stop drinking, it was just, it was too much of a stretch for me. So I didn't go back. And the thing that I liked about SMART is that it is just based on where that person's at and what's realistic and what's going to work for them. Yeah. I guess it's in, in, in your own time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's like, you know, what works for you. Like if you if you got a problem with alcohol but, you know, you like smoking a bit of weed and the weed's not causing problems, well, no worries. Let's support you to get off the alcohol, you know, and, you know, if you like having a few beers, but you find yourself getting smashed during the week, let's rein that back in. Like I, I liked the idea of 
let's just kind of deal with what is problematic and get you to where you want to be. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. We might take another short break there. Bicycle Users Group Radio, 10am every Monday morning on Community Radio 3CR. Also live streaming on the web and weekly podcasts at 3cr.org.au. So listen in for the very latest bicycle stories, news and views from Melbourne and around the cycling universe. Listen in.
this is Living Free on 3CR Digital and live streaming on 3cr.org.au. And today I'm talking with Nick and we're talking about recovery and how smart recovery helped him. Uh, so, Nick, before the break, we talked about smart recovery allowed you to sort of work on the things that were important to you in your time. So, you know, coming into smart recovery and sitting with a group of people talking about their problems, what was the thing that helped you the most, you know, as, as an early uh, participant? Probably the biggest thing that helped me the most was the facilitator because this guy had been through something really similar to me. It's like he lost everything and he turned his life around. So he, you know, similar kind of world. And um, and th- so there I was like, you know, pits of depression or whatever you want to call it. And and he, he told me how it, he was in the same place for like eight years like laid out on the floor of his apartment. And I'm like, bro, is that what I'm looking at? Eight years. And he's said to me, dude, no, like you don't have to waste all that time, right? Like don't do the, don't do it the way I did. You can flip it around. You can, you can find the gold in it, which is what he did, which is essentially, you know, he, he got himself back together by just flipping the script and starting to serve other people and taking his past and using it for, for a positive so he, he planted that seed and that was powerful. So what things did you work on initially? Initially it was, well, the, the thing is I was in Nelson Bay, so connections with drugs weren't real. I mean, you know, there's plenty of it up there, but it was like I was out of the environment where I was, you know, initially running a mark, which was big in itself. I spoke with him, like we did some one-on-one counselling and and he really helped with a lot of that just in terms of viewing the whole tragic situation as I saw it in a a different light. You know, it's funny, he actually ran, he ran walks up Mount Tomery on the Tuesday morning and he said, you know, like this isn't a regular part of what SMART typically does, but this is something he does like, it brings a group if you're interested. And he said, like, we, we're going to we go up and get that natural high. And I remember thinking, like, this guy's off his head. Like, how is that going to compare? And, you know, looking back, like, I, I see it's, it's this gradual process of starting to appreciate things like that. Because, like, for so long we've been using this, like, hedonistic jackhammer to, like build this massive rush where like everything else that we used to really enjoy kind of the senses get dulled. Yeah. And just exercising, man. Like I was, I was fortunate that my brother is, he's big into bikes. He lives up there as well. And, um, and I, I didn't have any way of getting around town because I spent all my money on drugs over the years. So I didn't have a car. There's no public transport up there. And well, they're minimal, but um, my brother's bike was a real blessing because I'd ride that to the shops or to the gym and just getting that fitness back, that was huge, yeah. So how long did it take you to get your, I, th- I think you said it was the, the drug use was a particular problem. So how long did it take you to get that you know, to a manageable level? Uh, I went back to Sydney after a few months because I got bored. I started noticing, like, oh, I want to go to the pub, like, really want to go to the pub, the boredom, the isolation. So I went back to Sydney, got back into that job that um, that I'd gotten to try to make everything work out. 
and that was awesome because that that gave me like a purpose and connection during the week. You know, like I, I remember sitting there and just like interacting with people, something that I hadn't had for so long. And the purpose as well, you know, it was huge. And then Friday evening it'd roll around and we'd play a few games of pool and people would shoot off and all of a sudden it's like, oh, man, what am I going to do? I've got like 48 hours. What am I going to do? And by Saturday afternoon, I'd end up, most weeks I'd end up at the pub and that would then lead to other things. And... Yeah, like every Monday when Smart would be run at Kirribilli, I'd, I'd go in and, you know, I'd have my story. I tried this and that, but it didn't work again. And But it was, it was good because I was still like, I was only getting smashed once a week, whereas before it got to the point where it was pretty much every day. But um, in terms of getting on top of the other stuff, you know, there was, there was a lot of progress being made, but there was still like that risky zone of where I'd, drink i'd get drunk and then that would lead to other things and uh, it was about a year after i came back about may of last year april or may i actually ended up getting back together with this woman and when i did one of the first things i did was reach out to joe set who was the my facilitator at the time and i said to her you know i caught up with a one-to-one and and she said um I said, Joe said, this is this has happened. I've gone back with this woman. It's amazing. And then she's um, you know, Josette was all she was happy that this was this was happening. She'd heard about this whole journey behind it. And I said to her, look, the reason I'm reaching out is because I need to put as many barriers in place between me and you know, one substance in particular, which is just off the cards that's so it's just an immediate deal breaker and josette said to me she said yeah look you can put all these barriers into place you can delete your dealers and numbers you can do it like all that stuff she said but what do we keep coming back to in these meetings nick like what's the the central factor here and i said it's the alcohol you know and she said, that's it. Like, that's that's your gateway drug, you know. People talk about weed as a gateway drug. Like, booze is the gateway drug, right? And she said, until you're able to really figure out how to get specific and measurable and achievable with the alcohol, then it's you're going to end up doing that stuff at some stage. So what did that lead you to do? What, what was the plan? To get specific. So figuring out a certain number of drinks where if I go beyond that, then I'm in danger zone and staying within that limit. So that was, that was probably the biggest thing for me. I feel like the, the other thing that shifted as well around that time was losing my job. Losing my job when COVID hit. You know, I got through, uh, had no work, government payment doubled boredom isolation i'm like i've got to do something productive otherwise you know i'm in strife like really productive so i started painting started bought a yoga mat and i enrolled in a counseling diploma and then the counseling diploma led to you know psych postgrad and then into the speaking and all the rest of it and all of a sudden finding that thing where you know this is like something really meaningful like Jordan Peterson says, you know, you, you need you need to find something that's worth not getting drunk and screwing up. Yeah, get a life. Yeah, yeah. So, 
how did that work out for you then? Once you stopped using alcohol, did you stop using drugs? Was that a was that pretty much an easy process? In terms of drugs, I can't remember the last time I took drugs without being drunk. Right. Yeah. So, Paul, how was not getting drunk working then? Could you achieve that by limiting drinks and type of alcohol? Yeah, so if I stick to four drinks or less within a session, then I'm good. If I go over that, it starts getting a bit risky. And, you know, ultimately, Bill, the, the thing is we know that abstinence is the best choice. Well, it's it's the safest choice, abstinence is. And there's the there's, there's always the risk there of going over, I guess. Yeah. So do you practice abstinence these days? No. No. So you you just you're on the edge. <laughs> well, no, I don't think that I am. You know, but yeah. maybe I'm maybe I am. I don't know. You know, it's people in 12-step programs, if you're listening to this, would be like, this guy's kidding himself, right? But um, you know, I, I see I see the progression out of addiction as a process. And, um, you know, look, I'm not going to lie, man, there's there's the occasional, like, oh, wow, I kind of went overboard, right? There is, but they're few and far between. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's... You'd call that normal drinking in real terms in Australia. Yeah. Yeah, it happens, yeah. Yeah. So how has changing the way you approach alcohol changed your life? I guess just that realisation that it, there's a limit for you and, you know, you've got to maintain that that limit. Otherwise, your your future's uncertain, I guess, at that point. Yeah. So I feel like I've achieved more in the last two years than the first 34 years of my life put together. Yeah. Like it's, it's um, I, I am going to blow my own horn here because I, I feel like I deserve to. Um Three high distinctions at UNSW and a credit is where I'm at right now um, in psychology, running wellbeing programs in schools, speaking on stage, running a private counselling business, waking up at 5am instead of 5pm when I used to, financially stable, like not earning the same money that I used to, but way more stable, connecting with people better, clearer, like my mental clarity, um, structuring the day. Yeah, and there's been heaps of help going into that. This isn't just the booze, you know. I've, I've, I've found life coaches. I've found, uh, you know, really, really good psychologists who's shown me how to use that ADHD medication properly. Strong support network. Yeah, there's there's a lot that goes into it, man. But it's like, it's, it's funny. It's I used to think that I was you know, getting degrees and doing things like an alcohol was a part of that. And it was like a real ego thing to be able to get that, like while still getting messed up. And then you take the, the benders away and it's like, whoa, there's a lot of potential here. Yeah. So do you want to talk a bit about um, being a facilitator smart? You know, the, I guess the benefit to you uh, in sharing your experience and I guess also what being a facilitator does for a group. Yeah, I've, I've always liked facilitating, whether it's, you know, 
in, in the addiction space or, you know, like a Toastmasters or just any kind of group work, I, I just really love. But yeah, in terms of helping people, I, there's something really powerful about the lived experience bit, which is interesting because the one, the, the facilitator who really helped me here in Sydney, Josette, you know, I, I don't think there is that, she didn't come through the peer network program, you know, she's been in, in that space for about 17 years. But yeah, in terms of helping people, it's it's useful from a selfish point of view because it's kind of reminding like the tools, right? It's and seeing where people are, it's like, oh yeah, I've got to look out for that. And hearing other people's ways that they manage things, it's like, yeah, I've, I've let that habit slip, you know. And, um, and in terms of helping other people, it's it's just cool to be able to hold that space and just try not to project my experience into it too much. Yeah. Let them ask the questions, not not give them the answers. Yeah. Yeah. So how long have you been facilitating in SMART? Not too long, man. It's only been a few months. So it's um, so I got the thumbs up from Josette to facilitate. Probably would have been around March, I think. Right. Yeah, yeah. I've been co-facilitating with Mark and on Mondays in the evenings. Yeah, so only, only for a few months now. Okay. So is, is there anything else you want to say before we finish up about your experience? And, you know, I know you've done a bit of stuff in the mental health area and working with kids. What's sort of the most important thing that you try and impart to kids these days? Yeah, there's, there's a lot in it. But, you know, getting messed up like that is largely a poor form of emotional regulation and trying to offer them the tools to be able to manage their emotions in a better way ultimately i bring it back to that point where i didn't really feel like i was on top of it until i was living for something bigger than myself yeah if anybody would like to find out more about smart recovery australia uh, you can visit their website which is smartrecoveryaustralia.com.au for details of their meetings and contact information uh, or you can call them directly in sydney on 029373 5100. So that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Nick for sharing his smart recovery story with us and also sharing his lived experience. Thanks, Nick. Thanks so much, Bill. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about recovery programs that assist those suffering directly or indirectly from addiction to drugs, alcohol, gambling, and food. Thanks for listening to the Living Free Show. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And now we've got a song called Lighten My Load by the Ironing Maidens. Enjoy. I could bake you cake all day. I could put the laundry away. Could do the dishes, forget about my wishes, and clean my f- dreams away. Or you could meet me halfway at home. You could sit and listen to me moan. You can take the basket, write yourself a task list, and decide which detergent is the go. Like a ship.